This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Useem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. All right, welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I am I'm the executive director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton, and we have a full house in the studio today. The band is back. I know, I know. And uh, Ann, you, you keep it. Like, I should not even. Yeah. Nope. Exactly. Nope. Don't, don't, don't go there, Jeff. There. Don't go you there. Like, you edited yourself. I know. There were like, and they were all musical references, but I found that each of them, as they popped into my head, were slightly inappropriate. So okay. um, none of them are, are going to make the. Uh, that's how, that's how good day. we are. Right now. So it's live radio. So apparently I'm just stream of consciousness. But Anne Greenhall, you're here in the studio with us. And delighted to be here, yep. Jeff. You're Thank the you. deputy director. That's right. Deputy the, D. The Dr. G. Yes, that's true. And and am I right? I mean, I feel like we should say this live on the air. Uh. I believe, I might make you tear up. <laughs> you might. <laughs> I believe that you recently taught the final section of a course known as Management 100, which you have been teaching for a number of years. Since 1993. 1993. Mm-hmm. And here we are in 2018. Mm-hmm. 25 years later. Yeah. That is, uh, look how good I am at math. That's 50 <laughs> semesters. <laughs> oh, that's very right? good. That's very good. Do you know how many sections? Oh, no. And I, you know, when, when I get requests to write letters of recommendation, and right. then there's a little box and you have to say, how many students have you taught? Right. <laughs> Just countless. Found <laughs> thousands. <laughs> well, fifth, I mean, 50 semesters. On average, I'd say, what, you were teaching. Three in the fall, yeah. two in the spring? Probably three and one. Three, three and, and one. one. Yeah. And I mean, you're always conservative, so <laughs> going to goose that a little bit. So that's like 75, 125 sections. Yeah. <sighs> right? That's a lot. Of, that's a, a fair lot amount of, of sections. Yeah. And yeah. in a section, there's how many 60. students? 60. Right? So well, we're in the... Yeah, we're we're approaching the ten thousand student mark. How about that? <laughs> That's great. So ten thousand students tired. Through, through management one hundred, right? Yeah. Twenty five years. Um, we may never even get to Mike, <laughs> let alone our our wonderful guest <laughs> yeah. Kathleen O'Reilly here. I'm going to stay with you for a second. Now. Okay. So if, as you look back over twenty five yeah. years, what what'd you learn? What'd you learn well, about you? First, what'd you learn about freshmen? I, well, I. I have to say that uh, it dawned on me that often in life we do something for the last time. Mm-hmm. And we don't always realize that it's the last time that we've done something. Maybe we have lunch, mm. and then suddenly our lunch partner moves to California, and we realize in retrospect that, gee, that might be the last time that I've ever had, and we'll have lunch with yeah, that yeah, person. Yeah. So I think it's really actually quite a special privilege to know when you're doing something for the last time. And so I really tried to embrace the experience this semester and savor it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think, I, I believe that that positive uh, predisposition towards the course and to the students uh, 
resonated with them, and they recognized that. So it was really a wonderful, wonderful semester. We ended on a high note. So when I started teaching Management 100, my daughter was three, and my twin boys were six months. Wow. And they've now graduated from college, mm. and they're out in the world. And I feel mm. that Management 100 has graduated, <laughs> and it is now out mm-hmm. in the world. And, and is there any truth to the rumor that everyone who registered for Management 100 got an A this semester? <laughs> <laughs> is there any, any truth to that at all? I've the heard students that, are hoping yeah. that. Yeah. I, I, I've, heard, I've heard that. Grades aren't formally in yet. <laughs> no, yeah. they're not formally in. But I'm sure the students are hoping that my uh, uh, just uh, – Relishing the moment. Your positive we'll have, predisposition. Yes, positive right? predisposition, predisposition will have wonderful uh, effects, yes. All right. All <laughs> Thank right. you, well, Jeff. Thank you. That's nice, kind. It's nice to have you here. Well, it's nice a pleasure to be, to be here. Nice to be back in the studio together. And, Mike, you're, you're also here. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> you're here, Mike. I am here, and I feel after hearing Anne's or your account of Ann's teaching, I'm feeling like a total slacker. No, come on, I, Mike. I'm feeling slug-like. <laughs> and I don't mean to insult slugs. They're actually a, a great animal. But yeah. anyway, I haven't been doing much. I know, and, it, I mean, it's it's good that you put that out there because it was going to be hard to draw it out of you on the air. Right? But yeah. f- full confession, uh, I, I want to be like Ann. Okay. Oh, that's right. too so kind. You, got, you just got done teaching, too, though. I did. Uh, not quite so many sections. And I should add, by the way, that while Anne is retiring, so to speak, from one class, yeah. she's actually just reinvented herself and a whole curriculum and is going to be teaching something even more extensive coming this coming that year, right? That is true. Anne? Wharton 101. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. from yes. management to yes. Wharton 101. One yes, door so closes and another yeah, opens, Mike. Uh, totally. So it doesn't end. <laughs> that's right. It's the endless academic <laughs> yes. uh, career. <laughs> that's right. Mm-hmm. So any end of semester and like classes are now over we're in that that period of time known as reading days reading days exams final papers and there's already a a certain sense that the academic year is beginning to button up for most people april is not the end of anything it's really a kind of late spring but just walking around campus the last Mm -hmm. day or two uh, people are not going to class now they're hunkered Mm -hmm. down studying for their final exams Mm -hmm. and getting those final papers in and then, of course, see if uh, listeners can relate to this. I bet everybody can, including our guest. There is that day that comes in just maybe a couple, maybe a week at the most for most of our students when you you walk out of your last exam, mm-hmm. and there is a sense of liberation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Class is yeah. over and a resolution <laughs> to get more on top of things next year. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, right. you know, we don't make them say it on the radio, but, um, you know, they... If they say it on the radio, then they really have to get on top <laughs> of things right. for next year. <laughs> and we, we have one other transition that I feel like we should note on the air right now as well. Um, she's not really going to look up. Now she is looking at me. So um, oh. this is our last show with Tatiana as well. And our, Yes, our engineer. Tatiana, I, I don't think we've ever actually had your, your voice on the air with us, but how about you bring it in now? Hey, guys. All right. <laughs> yeah, there it is. So this is the end of what, similar similar to Anne Greenhall, who taught. I know, starting like new journeys in yes, our lives. That's exactly. right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So where does the next chapter take you? Takes me to New York. The Big Apple? The Big Apple, yes. Right. I'm, I'm still, I'll still be with SiriusXM. And but. where can our listeners find you? 
on the Insight Channel, 121. All right. All right. So you've heard it here. You can follow Tatiana to 121. It's just up the dial Mm -hmm. a couple channels. Yes. All right. Well, and we want you to know how much we've just loved working with you. And thank you for being our backbone. Thank you. I'm going to miss you guys so much. I loved working working with you guys, too. Um, Patty, who now... I think Patty just cut Tatiana off completely. <laughs> Patty, Patty, you should know. I'm sorry, what? Your the backbone? Backbone. I mean, there are many organs in play here. Your head, your heart. Am I the heart and uh-huh. soul of and, leadership? Well, it's not really an organ. I was going with like an anatomical metaphor. She's the heart and soul of this channel. There we are. Heart and soul of the channel, our head and our heart. Does what, do you want a raise? Patty? I give you a raise now that I won't be paying you. All right. <laughs> All right, watch me pull it back together now. <laughs> yeah. Patty, Patty did tell us to behave before she left the studio. I know. That was what I was doing. Yeah, yes, okay. exactly. And right. I, said, I said fat chance, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, because you're incorrigible, Mike. <laughs> All right, so we're also yeah. going to do a show. Yes. We're going to do a show tonight. Um, I'm going to say a word about that show, and then we're going to bring our first guest Great. on. So our first hour... We're going to be talking with Kathleen O'Reilly. I'm going to say more about her in a second. Um, And that conversation is going to be about how we focus on innovation, how we attract top talent, strengthen the company's impact in local communities. In the second hour, we're going to hear more about innovation strategy. Um, And we're going to feature an interview that that our very own Mike Yuseem did with Nick Davis of the World Economic Forum. Um, Nick leads their work in what he calls the the fourth industrial revolution, uh, and and so we'll pull that thread all the way through. Um, we're going to start with with Kathleen O'Reilly now, and then we'll move into Nick Davis in our second hour. So uh, let us bring Kathleen into the conversation. Hi, Kathleen. <laughs> Good evening. <laughs> First, I should say thank you for. Um, enduring what no one knew I was going to do right in the beginning there. I fully enjoyed it, except now I want to go back to school. Oh, so, no. Well, so except for the exam that. part. Yeah. Huh? Well, except for the exam part, absolutely. Yeah. And we could uh, just lock the doors, and then you'll be here for, and we could be here for hours, We're days, ten. months. I actually arrived as a student, and Mike didn't let me leave, so right, that was right. that yeah. was about 16 years That's ago. That's true. I came as a student, graduate student, and never left. See? There you are. It can happen. It says a lot. All right. Well, Kathleen, if I can, I want to say a couple words about you, and then um, we look forward to the conversation very much. Super. I do, too. All right. So um, you're Senior Managing Director for the U.S. Northeast at Accenture. Uh, You're a 20-year Accenture veteran, and you've served in a variety of leadership roles in the company's communication, media, and telecom practices, which, as as we might surmise, serves communications, electronics, high-tech, media and entertainment industries, You've been a senior manager uh, for CMT within Accenture Strategy, also with Group Strategy. You've been an operations officer. Um, uh, You and I have this in common. So you began your career in the telecom industry with Verizon. I began with AT&T in Basking Ridge. That was the start of my time. I I know Basking Ridge well. (laughs) I believe Verizon is there now. (laughs) Yeah, I think you you now occupy what was the AT or Verizon now occupies. Exactly. Um, Did you work in that building? In the I did not actually. When I started at Verizon, I was right here in Philadelphia. I was I grew up here, and after school came back here. So got it. I was I was here locally. All right. I I worked the whole you know kind of 
Basking Ridge to Morristown, mm-hmm. that whole channel oh, well. of buildings. So, <laughs> and then well. exit thirty one, I think. Right? Yeah, AT and T did me the biggest favor of my life. They purchased TCI and Media One, created AT and T broadband, and allowed me to leave the lush hills of Basking Ridge for the beautiful mountains of Colorado. Mm. So most of my cable career was out actually in, in Denver. That sounds like a good trade. Yeah, it was a it was it was a fair trade. So, um, but let me ask you. Uh, and this is a popular question for us as we just uh, start to get to know a guest. You know, we were talking about being back in college and um, and our studies and everything else. If we had the chance to go back in time and, and talk to Kathleen at the end of high school, at the beginning of college, what did you think you might be doing? 20, well, 20 years plus. 20, right? yeah. 20 plus years. We won't say how many years yeah. plus. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. plus okay. is just yeah. on the end of that. Well, that, mean, yeah. that means exactly. like 10 years from now. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I don't I don't think I would have said I was doing consulting, mm-hmm. um, probably because mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily really understand what consulting was. There, there are some people today who still say they don't know what it is, but mm-hmm. we, could, we could have that as a different conversation. Uh, when I was both coming out of high school and then in college, I was focused on... Uh, international affairs, international economics. Mm-hmm. I was very interested in security matters, which is still very relevant yeah. today for yeah. different reasons. And so uh, I had the intent of uh, working um, probably in the State Department and teaching. I had it all worked out in my mind that I was going to work hmm. for the government uh, part-time, hmm. and I was also going to be teaching, preferably at the university level, uh, in government and international affairs. Yeah, so we, that's where I started. We can definitely <laughs> lock the doors there. Right? <laughs> yeah. right. So I'm, I feel right at home. I've come I've come back, although I, I would have only hoped to be a Penn. Yeah, <laughs> if I'm right, you were studying at the Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson School. I did. I went to Princeton University. Right. Uh, and, so, yeah. and, that, and that's okay. Here, <laughs> here within the radio bubble, yeah. there are no strong rivals. Well, exactly. I I, I did say to Mike that when we walked in, my my sister, my husband, and my brother-in-law all graduated from Penn. So, <laughs> okay. so I'm sort of outnumbered anyway at the dinner Got table yeah. still today. So <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it is um, loyalties run deep, right? That's yeah. right. They, absolutely. They, absolutely run they deep. do. Yeah. So I went to the Woodrow Wilson School, and then I did some time doing some research up at the Kennedy School at Harvard afterward, mm-hmm. and really that sort of. Uh, got me to sink my teeth into what were really the issues around um, changes in the economic environment and mm-hmm. and uh, the U.S. role in the world at that time, which in the late 80s, mm-hmm. early 90s mm-hmm. was really being, Paul Kennedy had written The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, and there was right. question as to yeah. U.S. leadership and the role mm-hmm. that the U.S. is going to, t- to play at that point. And so that was really where my focus was. Got it. And I mean, it's great that all those issues have been resolved so clearly. <laughs> yeah. I think about that these days. I thought, I thought what I studied was, was out of date, but clearly not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, really, I was just, so I'm just <clears throat> curious what, what, what happened next? You, know, you must have pivoted. How, yes. How did the how did the thread get connected? So, after I left school, well, actually, while I was working uh, at um, doing research up at the Kennedy School uh, with Joe Nye, who was a professor up there at the time, um, we uh, power he, to lead, right? That's right, bound to lead, bound to lead. So I was his researcher on that book, and one of the things we looked at was the changing nature of U.S. power, um, and really what um, what was going to underlie our leadership in the future. And one of the things we started to look at was um, the power of communications and the world opening up. Mm -hmm. Early stages of the internet, if you will, Berlin Wall had come down, Soviet Union opening up, et cetera. And um, the communications industry played a critical and pivotal role in that. It was deregulating at the time. I was focused in government and regulation. And so I decided, uh, I was actually going to move on to get my doctorate, but decided that I wanted to actually 
work in the industry for a bit to really understand the dynamics of it. Mm -hmm. So I took what I thought was a temporary role working in the communications industry for what the company that is now Verizon uh, so that I could uh, really kind of dive into the regulation and what I thought was going to happen internationally. At the time, Verizon was Bell Atlantic. It was run by a gentleman who was very internationally savvy, Mm. Ray Smith. And so I got a job Mm. working uh, working in that environment, which was great, but um, really fell in love with, I mean, I'm naturally curious. I was constantly reading and studying. I thought the industry really had the opportunity, um, as Joe had really foretold in his book, to have a big impact on the way the world evolved. Right. And so I, um, I stayed. And then I stayed hmm. some longer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then uh, then I was paying off some of the student debt, so that always helps a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, got very interested in um, in that. And I realized that at that, I think at that early stage, that really what mattered to me wasn't in what, where or when I uh, did the work, but I wanted to work in areas that made a difference. And I felt that that industry was one that was going to make a difference in how we, you know, how the world operated. That's how I got there. Let's pull you in. Uh, Well, before we uh, move away from the Ray Smith, uh, (laughs) Kathleen, he was on campus here several times. We actually ran a program with Bell Atlantic, which joined with 9X to form what is now Verizon. And the topic he referenced and what brought people to our campus so many times, lots of the mid to senior level managers, is the fact that this was a so-called ARBOC, a regional Bell operating company. Totally protected up until AT&T broke up. There was one telecom in the United States, essentially. And all of a sudden, Bell Atlantic and then later Verizon found Mm. itself competing not only with the other regional companies, but with companies coming from outside the U.S. as well. Huge challenge there, and this is the topic I know you've been working on, is how to go from a protected, relatively steady-state industry to one that really had to be out there at the edge of new technologies before somebody else got there ahead of them. So with all that said, um, just thinking back on your days with Bell Atlantic and then Verizon, as you watch the <coughs> that company as it morphed into what it is today, it's one of the great telecoms of the world, of course. Absolutely. How did it get more innovative? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, uh, hmm. it's, an, uh, it's an evolution, obviously. I, I think the company... I mean, I won't speak about the com- that company in particular, but that industry, I think, as a whole. Yeah. And I would really attach to that the broader industry, the cable industry, you reference the cable industry, yeah. AT&T broadband, um, and then, of course, the Internet players and, um, and really many other providers mm-hmm. at this point that have entered that space, I think has underpinning it a history of innovation in technology. Mm. Um, if you think back to, you know, the Bell Labs days, right? Yeah. I mean, you think about who was there. So yeah. I think um, while they may have been... Um, mm from a regulatory perspective, a sense of protection mm-hmm. with the consumer business saying, okay, we've only only got one choice. The idea around technology innovation and what's next and how to serve the customer and how to connect people differently and bring different services to change their life experience in the home, if you will, I think has always actually mm-hmm. been underneath those companies. They're brilliant people working there who yeah. like to stay out on the edge, if anything, a very engineering mindset in terms mm-hmm. of those cultures. Um, so I think there's a history that serve mm-hmm. them well. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as they've grown, and I think competition has served them well. Right? Yep. I, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, it pushes us. It makes us think differently. And um, that collaboration with partners that they've had to do over time, I think, also has brought new ideas to the table. I think that's really interesting. And yeah. to stay under that for just a minute more, it was, I guess, to put my words on what you just said, innovation in technology was already kind of in the DNA. Absolutely. Uh, that said, it's now many years later since the Bell Atlantic and 9X merger to form uh, Verizon, 
And as you've looked at Verizon now from the outside and with other telecoms, um, it looks to outsiders like, certainly to me, as an incredibly fast-moving, hard-charging industry that's always on the verge of being disrupted by somebody else. Mm -hmm. So as you've worked with some of your clients in telecom, when it comes to advising them on how to stay ahead <laughs> of that that curve, uh, what's your advice? Well, I would say that the advice is actually not that different for those companies than it is for most companies. Almost every industry mm -hmm. is being disrupted. In my current role, I work cross-industry, and it's really struck me. Um, how similar, doesn't matter whether you're talking to retail or you're in life sciences or, um, you know, fill in the blank on the industry, they're all actually being disrupted. And really, <laughs> we, we look <laughs> at a balance. So the core business of those businesses is still very critical. So mm -hmm. how do you make sure that you continue to grow that core mm -hmm. um, and look for ways to uh, serve the customer better, uh, potentially change how you operate it? So, of course, run it more effectively and efficiently. So that's kind of one element that we work with our clients on. Um, the second element is to say, well, where do you where do you look for the new? Where are the new opportunities? Without uh, walking mm. that fine line, become becoming too enamored with the shiny new object, which mm -hmm. is very mm -hmm. easy to do these days, mm -hmm. and to move too quickly into that new, growing that new part of your business and seizing the opportunity presented by disruption, and then really we call it the you know, making the wise pivot. How do you actually uh, know when to switch from the core to the new? How do you build that new business yep. and say, we're still keeping that core underneath it, but for all intents and purposes, we've become a different company. We've shed the old skin mm -hmm. and grown into something new. And so we work with them on that timing and how do they seize the, the disruption, but not too early, not too late, and still make their core business as effective for as long as they can. I want to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and we're talking with Kathleen O'Reilly of Accenture this hour. Joining us in this conversation are my friends and colleagues, Anne Greenhall and Mike Yusim. And so, Kathleen, I want to stay with this thread a little bit if we can. Um, one of the things that is probably not unique totally to the telecom industry, but that I, I found to be a really fascinating dynamic to watch is... As you were discussing, there there was always this history of technological innovation, right? And Bell Labs was one of the places that that was happening, probably the main place that was happening within the traditional telecom world. Um, the cable industry had its, you know, kind of analog in that all the different cable companies would contribute into cable labs, and a lot of the technology came out of that organization and then went back into the different um, commercial franchises. So how did... Uh, how do you think an industry evolves from industry level technological R&D to kind of bringing that more into the firm, right? And making it more of a firm's capability. Is that, A, is that, a, is that an accurate assessment of some of the dynamics over a couple decades um, where, where innovation had to become more proprietary um, and how successful were they at it? Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure if I agree completely with the thesis that it has to be mm -hmm. internal and broad internal, and, and here's why. So first of all, I do agree that one has to have one's proprietary uh, strategy and differentiation in the marketplace. But what we're seeing is that collaboration uh, has not just moved from the industry ecosystem, but mm -hmm. across the ecosystem. Mm. And in fact, there's more partnering, there's more bringing in uh, players from various industries to solve issues, and we're becoming much more focused on 
what makes the world a better place, what makes business better, what makes the consumer's life yeah. better. And that really requires actually something that, again, is to some extent in the DNA of those companies, which mm-hmm. is fu- working with others mm-hmm. that are not necessarily just in the company. I think what's what's critical for any one individual company is to understand where they're going to differentiate and what they want to bring to the table and to understand how they play on that and to, to some extent, leverage the broader ecosystem for those things that don't need to be core to their business mm-hmm. and that can be shared, if you will. Yeah, that, that's such an interesting point because it, it struck me even as I was, you know, just introducing you and reading what the pra- how, to, how you would define the practice. Communications, electronics, high technology, media, entertainment, uh, mm-hmm. it's a hard thing to draw a circle around. It right? is. And, it is. And say what's in or what's out. It is. And, and, the reality is that day in, day out, uh, with our clients at Accenture, we actually do bring um, multiple industries together. They're really, we're, we will focus around issues. I mean, you <laughs> might talk about how health and life sciences are coming together and how that's playing with retail these <laughs> days, right? I mean, we all read all the stories that are, you know, various industries and how they're converging. That's That word convergence has been used in the communications, media, and telecom industry for sure. years. We've all been saying, is convergence finally here? And it's just a permanent state of being, mm-hmm. is that companies are coming together in new ways to solve issues, and then they're breaking apart and doing something different, working with other partners. And so that's really what we're seeing happening you yeah. know, across the board, across industries. And when you think about that kind of collaboration, what, um, you know, what are some of the catalysts? What are some of the, the um, kind of sparks that, that lead to firms in maybe, you know, previously considering themselves a little bit different, now finding these points of commonality? Well, certainly dis- mm-hmm. disintermediation, right? Mm-hmm. A, a new player always disrupts. Mm-hmm. So, and the, the traditional players will look to each other to say, how do we, how do we combat this? Not, ne- not Obviously not in a way where they're working together inappropriately, but to say, if we have a, an Amazon coming mm-hmm. in, how do traditional retailers disrupt and they have to look outside their core business because obviously somebody new has come in and found a new business model, a new way of doing it, et cetera. So I think disruption like that mm-hmm. um, plays into it. Um, new new demands from consumers certainly also play, right? I can't develop, it will take me years to develop a capability. How do I go out and it's traditional partnering, right? How do I go out and find that capability elsewhere, bring it together, bring the core competencies together? So it's normally, we find it either market driven or driven by some sort of massive disruption to the industry where you can predict that volatility, mm-hmm. right? The, the normal market is stable and then something comes to disrupt it, it becomes volatile, new players emerge, new business models emerge and it kind of follows that, mm-hmm. that disruption. We find that mm-hmm. disruption can actually be pretty predicted actually when um when we look at you know like the merger and acquisition literature for instance mm-hmm. right most most m a um is driven strategically um and most m a is derailed culturally do you see those kind of those kinds of patterns as well within these kinds of collaborative practices that you're talking about where strategy and technology may push firms to collaborate um and culture is the thing they have to figure out in the how they work together. I would say it's probably less pronounced than it might be in the merger and acquisition space. Okay. As a strategist, mm-hmm. I mean, I've we've, I've worked with many companies that have made that bold move to acquire or to merge two companies, and it's it becomes a little more binary in that mm-hmm. case, right? You've made a decision, and they're either going to work together or not. And that cultural element, uh, that change management element, is critical. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a I think companies trying to find the right business model and find the right ways to come together is absolutely critical. But I think companies are getting better at it um, and are much more open to different kinds of partnerships and working together. So while culture matters, there's usually a very clear intent of what they're trying mm-hmm. to accomplish and a need. And I think that 
that um, necessity kind of breeds invention to some extent. Hmm. I guess I'm just wondering if you can give us uh, an illustration of just the just exactly what you've said. We've got uh, strategic intent and an intention and culture, and they work it out. The companies work it out. Can you give an illustration of that? Hmm. Without naming names, yeah, yeah. without naming names. Um, well, well, certainly. I mean, I can I can give examples of um, even in our, even in our own industry, professional okay. services firms partnering with technology firms to solve mm-hmm. issues. I mean, many times we will we Accenture and others like us will collaborate with technology firms to develop new solutions to. Uh, it may be the way someone goes to market. It might be a technological um, capability that underpins, mm-hmm. you know, channel work. It might be something around uh, AI these days. We're certainly doing work with that. So normally you mm-hmm. wouldn't see that kind of partnering in the past, and now we come together to solve those issues. All right. Good. Very good. All right. Well, I think yeah. maybe we'll take a short break. Mm-hmm. Short break. What do you think about that? It's, it's the right time. All right. So it's about that time. <laughs> I'm going to ask everybody to stay with us. After the break, we're going to talk more with Kathleen O'Reilly of Accenture. I'm Jeff Klein, and you're listening to Leadership in Action here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. All right. Welcome back. We're grooving (laughs) here on Leadership in Action. Sirius XM, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. You're on Channel 111. So are we. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm here with Ann and Mike. This hour, we're talking with Kathleen O'Reilly, Senior Managing Director for the U.S. Northeast at Accenture. Um, and, you know, we've been, we've been waxing reminiscent about <laughs> yes. the days of the telecommunications industry. Mm-hmm. Any, anytime a telecom vet comes on the show, I, we have to do a little bit of that work. Um, and I think in, in this segment of the interview, um, we want to do a, a couple things. One is we'd like to talk about the role that, Kathleen, you play on Accenture's North America Le- North America Leadership Team, Global Leadership Council. <laughs> and, uh, and we also want to talk about some of the work that Accenture is doing around innovation. So, Anne, you want to get yeah, us started on, am on leadership? Yeah. All right, Kathleen, I know that you serve on Accenture's North American Leadership Team and Global Leadership Council. So can you tell me a little bit about how that role came about? Sure, absolutely. So our North America is led by Julie Sweet, our uh, North American CEO. And um, the leadership, I actually started working with Julie uh, a few years ago. I came in as her group operating officer at the time and looking at growth and strategies. I mentioned earlier, I'm a strategist. My prior role to that was leading strategy worldwide for communications and media and technology to our prior conversation. And uh, and Julie and I, Julie uh, made the offer to come and work with her as she was stepping into her, she was relatively new in her post as okay. our CEO mm-hmm. in North America and made the offer to come and work with her on um, really looking at what is the next generation of growth, what is gonna drive the next wave of growth mm-hmm. for our clients and our markets in North America and then how do we respond to that. And so that's how I stepped into that role and then uh, subsequently stepped into the role uh, serving one piece of that, which is Northeast. So I report to Julie still in that role. Uh, Our NALT, as we call it, uh, is comprised of the leaders across all of our industries. Accenture is very focused on industry, as Mm -hmm. you might tell from our earlier conversation. 
Mm-hmm. So we have leaders uh, in that space, five leaders that uh, lead the uh, operating units. And then we have our businesses, Accenture's businesses, so strategy, technology, operations, digital. And those leaders sit on it. And then those of us who lead the businesses on the ground geographically. Mm-hmm. And we really, it's an opportunity for us to at all times be comparing what we're seeing in the market, what's disrupting markets, mm-hmm. what's disrupting our industries, what things we can bring to our clients, what new capabilities we can bring to our clients and so it's a very active uh, energetic team Mm -hmm. we have some very good debates about what we think is really going to make the most difference but all very committed to our you know to our mission of of changing the way the world works and lives and so that's uh, that's kind of the dynamic that um, that plays out on that uh, team every couple weeks when we get together so roughly how many people meet and how and you said every other every other week did I hear you right? Yeah not in person we are we obviously leverage technology as a firm so uh, we're really lucky in what we've got to uh, to be able to come together virtually Mm -hmm. all the time but um, the total team I think is about 23 people because obviously our uh, you know group operating officer head of finance etc sit on that team Mm -hmm. and um we, uh, we come together a couple mo- times a month, and mm-hmm. some of those are longer sessions, some are shorter, but just Great. to make sure we are constantly talking about what we're seeing. I mean, every mm-hmm. one of us is, uh, including Julia, are in the market every day, right? Yeah. We're with our clients or with our people. Um, so that's one piece of the discussion. Mm-hmm. The other is, is, is really about our people. There's about 50,000 people work in mm-hmm. North America. And so, uh, U.S. and Canada, and so there are many, many mm-hmm. conversations about what we do. We are, you know, our people are our business, mm-hmm. and so at the end of the day, that is always core to uh, mm-hmm. to our conversation. How do we create value for our markets, and how do we create value, mm-hmm. you know, for and with our people? And are there some perennial topics of conversation that come up in these meetings? Well, certainly these days, any sort of disruption, technological mm-hmm. disruption, how it's driving change and how we drive value out of it is is at the core of every single conversation mm-hmm. we have, including talking about our people, because how we uh, how how we um, leverage our the individuals who work for the firm, how we're structured on any given day to bring that to market is mm-hmm. part of that conversation. But that's very much at the core of it. And these days that can range from, you know, security to analytics, applied intelligence artificial intelligence all the way through to you know early days of you know quantum computing and blockchain and all of that so we're, we're very much talking about the content of what mm-hmm. is driving the market um, we often are talking about uh, people elements like there's no meeting that doesn't have uh, discussion around what's what matters to our people maybe it's around programs that need to change uh, it could be around our annual processes um, but most of the time it's really about how you know, these days, there's a lot of focus on how do we drive a, um, create a truly human environment in the digital age. That's hard, right? We do work virtually. Our people are uh, very busy, very committed, usually at our mm-hmm. client sites. And so how do we as a company form that cohesiveness to be the best place mm-hmm. for people to work? So maybe one more than Mike, I'll get you here in, in the conversation. How, how do you go about decision making in that council? It depends on the question, um, but usually we will have, depending on, first of all, we decide on what the issues are that mm-hmm. need to be discussed, and usually some subset of us, usually representing different pieces, as I described, mm-hmm. we have, we're a matrix, and so the pieces around that matrix will come together um, to work it and then bring the ideas back to the team, so mm-hmm. fairly traditional in that sense, and then there's a lot of energetic debate. I mean, it's a pretty committed group, so you know we'll thrash around in the issues, and we will go out and get other feedback. Obviously, members of our global management committee will often weigh in, mm-hmm. which obviously Julie is one, yeah. uh, but we will... Um, uh, you know, we will debate, and then we normally, normally, it's it's pretty consensus driven. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, um, we all have strong views on things. But when we commit, we 
we commit mm-hmm. as a team. And then we put our shoulder to the wheel. That's also, to some extent, the Accenture way. I mean, we are stewardship is one of our core values, mm. um, as is respect for the individual. So you can kind of imagine the, mm. the dynamic in the room may be energetic, but it's respectful. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, if we think it's going to leave the place better than we found it, whether the place is the world, the client, the firm, then um, we can all rally our heads around it. And if there's a real uh, dif- division in decision-making, if you're unable to come to consensus, <laughs> am I right in thinking that Julie would be the one to make that decision? Yes, yeah. you would be right mm-hmm. to think that Julie would make that decision. Uh, but, uh, you know, Julie leads the team, mm-hmm. and so she normally leads. You know, she she will lead the team to the decision that she, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. very good listener. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I've, she's mm-hmm. always very respectful of all the views around the table, and she takes the time to vet those. It's great. Mike? Kathleen, you have an extremely interesting perch, if I can put it that way, mm-hmm. in that you work with many clients, so you see how they run, how they're led, yep. but at the same time, you're having to manage and lead within yeah. your own firm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, uh, maybe even as a listener here, I've got a, a consulting firm, maybe 500 people, a fraction of your size. I think worldwide, you're probably some, somewhere north of 200,000, 250, maybe even 300. 440,000. 400, wow. Okay, you're a wow. big company, right up there with some of the biggest in the world. Uh, but for those running smaller enterprises, I think they would still love to have your thoughts on how you manage and how you lead a consulting firm. And by way of kind of odd analog, in some respects, it's not unlike a university where we have lots of fairly independent and very <laughs> autonomous actors, uh, three in this room. Uh, so we, we tend to say nobody can... Are you can, giving us feedback? <laughs> yes. Is that what that was? How could people tell? Some yeah. story here I don't know, <laughs> yes. I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. They pay no attention to me ever. Yeah. Anyway, so how do you manage or, ma- above all, how do you lead within a consulting firm? Well, one of the things that powers us is the diversity of ideas. People generally don't get into, if I could be generalized, people don't get into consulting unless they are naturally curious, love solving hard problems that nobody's been able to figure out the answer to, and they, to some extent they thrive a bit in ambiguity. Mm. It's sort of the world. You're always on, you're always on the leading edge, um, and, um, and that can be an uncomfortable place to be. So I find that a few things in consulting uh, help, and one is being grounded in a mission. And while sometimes I think mission statements can get a bit of an eye roll, oh, it's the walk in the woods, does it really mean anything? Um, as I've gotten further along in my career and really older in my life, I actually think that that sense of purpose matters. Mm-hmm. So whatever you're doing, if you're leading a professional services firm or really anything where you are thriving on diversity of thought, um, diversity of background, um, and and people who are constantly, I mean, to some extent, embracing new ideas that maybe challenge the way they've always thought, because that's the nature of what we're to some extent paid to do. Having clarity of a mission um, is really a unifying yeah. factor for us. We say that's yep. changing, you know, improving the way the world works and lives, and that sounds uh, a, a little um, uh, lofty, but at the end of the day, truly, that is what that's what we believe we're doing, and so that <laughs> helps um, having very clear values that are non-negotiable. We operate uh, we operate in over 100 countries. So you can imagine that culture may be different and, mm-hmm. and how people you know, live and what they eat and all of these things may be very different. But at the end of the day, there's some things that are non-negotiable um, inside Accenture and our core values. I mentioned two of them earlier, respect mm-hmm. for the individual, stewardship, um, but there are others, uh, you know, integrity. They're non-negotiable. And that helps guide people as they're mm-hmm. doing their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd say the last thing in, you know, in consulting is um, thriving, allowing people to thrive and be rewarded um, by living um, 
living in the world of disruption, embracing change, taking reasonable risks, putting ideas out there, um, that helps a lot. Um, whether you've got 500 or 440,000 people, I think the connection matters. We operate as one global network. That's one of the things we say. And I think people don't realize it until if they come and work with Accenture, they realize it's true that, you know, if I put, I often say, if I put a question out at six o'clock at night because there's an issue and I want to know who's been thinking about this and I were to put it out, you know, on the stream, for example, at Accenture or send an email out if it's a little more private. When I wake up the next morning, my mailbox is filled with mm. people saying, I'm working on it. I've been thinking about it. I've been researching it. I worked with a client on it. How can I help? Whether it's our labs, whether it's people in the marketplace, whether it's our research organization, people willing to help. And that willingness mm. to help and roll your sleeves up goes a long way towards uh, unifying around solutions, even if your thoughts coming in are different. It's really interesting. Uh, it's sort of my wording, it's in the culture. That, that it is. is. It's in the mindset. It's how people mm-hmm. come to work, and it's almost as if it's natural to do what you've just described. However, culture is a created condition, and if you could just say a couple things about the really tough question we're often asked about this, of the mechanics of creating and then sustaining these ideas, your values, your purpose, and beyond. How do you go about ensuring you have some turnover, of course, new people coming in, How do you ensure that the mindset is shared when people come to work every day? Mm. Well, the mechanics has has some of the basics you might imagine, right? There's very consistent, clear communication. The amount, what we we put forth to our people, for example, curiosity and and encouraging diversity of thought. We we spend a billion plus dollars a year on training our people and offering new ideas. So so they learn, you know, we, we say what we mean and we mean what we say, right? Diversity. Um, we are very focused. You asked about Julie and her leadership team, mm-hmm. our global leadership yeah. council, obviously led by Pierre Nantern, our CEO. The diversity of thought, the diversity of background, the diversity of the people in the room is very much a part of our culture. And we're very public about our commitment to that because we're holding ourselves accountable. So why not put it out there? Um, so those are some of the mechanics of it, um, you know, from a, from a communication training, culture meetings, et cetera. Uh, at a very, but at the end of the day, culture may be a big thing, but it's also very personal. And everybody comes into the firm. We're not trying to, we actually value that diversity and that background. Mm. So we don't want everybody to look the same and act the same and think the same. We want them to understand that what we value is that diversity. And so how that happens is really at the end of the day on the ground in small teams. We could have 440,000 people, but at the end of the day, people are working on teams on the ground at our clients. And um, we run a, an apprenticeship model. And that's how, you know, people see their leaders, they're present, and they're sort of living it. And role models go a long way. <laughs> Going to remind our listeners that I'm Jeff Klein. You're the listener. <laughs> and this is Leadership in Action. <laughs> yep, I just did that. <laughs> We're talking with Kathleen O'Reilly, Senior Managing Director for the U.S. Northeast at Accenture. And we're having a conversation about culture. About culture. And Kathleen, I, I really appreciate that statement that you just made, that culture is, is ultimately really personal, right? And it's something that is, is lived and felt and enacted by the individuals which are within a firm. So um, one of the things that we know is a part of the Accenture culture and has been a part of the, um, the strategy uh, last year in February under um, – North American CEO Julie Sweet's leadership. Accenture announced an accelerated innovation investment, which sounds grand. 
what it means is the opening of ten new innovation hubs, right, in key cities, uh, um, key cities in the in the country. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of innovation within the culture and um, what this new strategic thrust means? Sure. Well, innovation's always been something that's mattered to us, but I would say that really in the past few years, often our clients would say what we're looking for is not just bringing us solutions, bringing us ideas around Mm -hmm. a certain problem, but push us. And so that's always been a challenge put forward by our clients. So at the end of the day, our world Mm -hmm. is brought to us by our clients. And Mm -hmm. so in to some extent in response to that, in response to the pace of change Mm -hmm. out there, um, we really put a, a very significant emphasis on um, on moving towards innovation and what we call embracing the new. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was driving that inside Accenture is that Accenture's business, and you know, Pierre is very vocal, you know, very public about this. P- Accenture's business is changing. Yeah. You know, our just like any other company, we're being disrupted at all points. Mm-hmm. New things are coming in, so we had to look to where is our next wave of growth? Where is the future going? And that required really stepping into this new disruption caused by the technologies out there that we've, you know, that mm-hmm. we referenced during this conversation. So as part of that, um, we've we've embarked on um, a lot of investment, as I mentioned, things like training globally, obviously, for our people, obviously bringing in, we are always bringing in um, tens of thousands of new resources Mm -hmm. every year uh, to bring that diversity of thought. But one of the things we also saw was that there's a change in terms of how our clients uh, want to work with us because Mm -hmm. innovation is no longer, well, I have, I'm going to be driving innovation around a project innovation has to become a part of their dna mm-hmm. to use the phrase mm-hmm. that mike you know used earlier and so it's it's a constant process it's part of what you do and in order to do that it's not a transactional we're not i mean we like to have long-term relationships with our clients but mm-hmm. contracts and projects can feel transactional and so what mm-hmm. we want to do is be able to and we don't want our clients to have to get on a plane to silicon valley to go see innovation you can't mm-hmm. go see innovation and so what we said was we need to work side by side with you. And that requires us actually having physical facilities, if you will, that mm-hmm. to some extent are, um, you know, the, the manifestation of a way to bring that innovation to our clients doorstep, as Julie likes to say it, and then to bring them into those centers with us. Obviously, we work with them at their site also. Bring mm-hmm. them into those centers where we have all elements of Accenture present mm-hmm. and ready to work with them around, um, you know, an issue that needs, let's say, a five-day you know, design thinking sprint to tackle it and co-create a solution with them versus us bringing a solution to them. Because sometimes the question isn't even clear. Yeah. And then present in those places, we have Accenture Research. We have our, our Liquid Studios where we do rapid prototyping and MVPs literally mm. on the fly, right there with them, react to it, change it. Let's develop that solution together. Mm. But that, and as part of it, we also are developing a cadence of innovation with our clients, becoming their innovation mm. partner longer term. Certainly then those things have to scale mm-hmm. as they make sense, but it's kind of a you know build it, fail fast, win fast yeah. uh, environment. And so we have all elements of Accenture's innovation architecture, our labs, our ventures. Uh, we will bring in academia. We will bring in startups, mm-hmm. whatever it takes. So it's not really, it's meant to be a place where we say what is needed for this for this issue. Let's come together and let's co-create a solution. And our ecosystem partners are there with us. It's not just Accenture and the client even. So it's just a different way of working mm-hmm. and um, and developing things together. And as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are you, you've opened new innovation hubs in Houston and Boston and Columbus. Um, what's the response from from employees from the workforce? They love it. 
they love it. Um, if anything, uh, Boston obviously falls uh, within um, within my space in the Northeast, and uh, I am bombarded by people wanting to work in the hub yeah. all the time. Um, the other thing is it's a completely different vibe, literally from our launch in December, um, where we had a wait list for the launch itself. Um, we are uh, we're jammed every day, and we have we have cli- the thing is you walk around, you don't know who's you know it could be clients, it could be somebody from a another university up in Boston, let's say. Um, there's some good ones. Yeah, yeah, maybe not Penn, but no, there's some great ones up there. Um, it could be, there's obviously many startups and, yeah. and firms up there. And so it's it's really a buzzing environment and um, and they love it. And what's interesting is it's not just um, the young people, it's not just the millennials. There are people who have worked for for and with Accenture for three decades sure. who have come up to me literally with tears <laughs> in their eyes and said, this feels like the place I drink because that was that was always at the core of what it was. But when you scale, it becomes a little yeah. harder to feel it, mm-hmm. and they can feel it where they work. So, Kathleen, um, do people work at the hub in a, in a quote permanent sort of status, mm-hmm. or do you bring in? Do people come in and out depending on who who is needed? Both. 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 It, there, there is always a core core team at okay, the hub, if you will, okay. at our hubs, um, and that's yeah. you know design thinkers. We have application developers. We have folks from our labs, and we're very connected technolo- technologically. So, if you were to go to Boston, we have a portal into um, our uh, advanced technology center in Bangalore. So you're there, and you're you're talking to Bangalore. Right? So that's that's a typical. And we're a technology based firm, so we have all of that at our disposal, sure. which is great. Or we're connected to the DOC, which is our global center for innovation in Dublin. Um, by and large, most of the people coming in are coming in and out. Mm-hmm. So what we are doing, and and have been investing in, and Julie, I think also said this in this at the same time, we're investing uh, an additional 1.4 billion dollars in training our people in new ways of working. So mm-hmm. even for those people who maybe it's not. It's not as in their DNA. You know, mm-hmm. The younger people sometimes have taken it. I mean, you guys know this, right? They, they're much more well-trained in some of the new ways of working. We're retraining everybody to think and work differently. So bring the old, the core, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. I said earlier, mm-hmm. and bring the new at the same time. But we have a lot of folks in and out. Yeah. And then the partners. I, li- I like very much your use of the word to co-create a solution. Do, do partners also come with a... Camarot, you know, a corral of people to the hub as well. They do as needed. What mm-hmm. we will normally do is we, you know, we really spend a lot of time with our clients figuring out what will be the best way to come together mm-hmm. and what's needed. And if we think we need startups or we think, as I said, you mm-hmm. know, academia or we may need a large, you know, a large partner to come in, mm-hmm. uh, of which we have uh, many. We are, the good news is we are, um, we don't have a bias in that sense. Our mm-hmm. goal is to find whatever the best is. And so you may find multiple companies in there rolling their sleeves up, you know, around the table working with, uh, oftentimes it's actually, you know, an entire C-suite mm-hmm. in there with us thinking through the issues, which is kind of kind of unusual, actually. Yeah. And are the hubs talking? They are, absolutely, Because yeah, yeah. that would be interesting also. be ironic yeah. if they weren't. Right? It would be, but just, just <laughs> yeah. checking. No, very, very, very. Just checking. An isolated very hub yeah. strategy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, very connected. An isolated and, network. <laughs> and connected into our clients, because many yeah. of our clients are doing the same thing. Yeah. And um, so connected into whether it's, you know, their chief innovation officers or CISOs, whatever the topic may be. That's great. Thank you. Kathleen, we're down to just a couple of minutes, mm-hmm. and I do want to ask a, a final, more personal but professional question. As you go to work, what's a really good day entail? What happens? Well, anybody who knows me, who who listens to this is going to say, I'm going to say clients and people, which I know will get an eye roll, but it is true. Um, because you can get caught up in lots of other stuff, right? And that's, um, that's not really what makes the world go round. Um, a really good day for me 
um, and we do say this, sometimes we say it's Accenture on our best day, is when we have brought together, we've come together with a client. It may be in a hub. It may be in a more traditional sense. It hasn't probably changed over the years. But when we work with our clients around a, a big issue that they haven't been able to solve and we have a major breakthrough and we have been able to bring something brand new to the table and literally you know, the team's kind of high-fiving themselves. It may be a day. It may be an entire project. It may be six months. It may be two years. Though we're driving huge value for one of our clients in the marketplace, but where it has at the same time also brought our teams together in new ways. We're a, we're a, we're a pretty close team. And um, even though, you know, we, we form and break apart and form and break apart in different ways, um, when we've brought all of Accenture, it's always better. We always say that. That's yeah. great. That's wonderful. All right, so well, good. Kathleen, we want to say thank you for thank joining you for us here tonight. Me. I yeah. really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. If, um, for our listeners who want to learn more about your work, more about Accenture's strategy around innovation, um, where would you direct them? I would direct them first to our website, to Accenture.com. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, Mike and Anne. Yes. We are, in a few minutes, going to bring on Mike's conversation with Nick Davis, who's the head of Society and Innovation at the World Economic Forum. Before we do, um, mm. let me just look at look to each of you. Is there, a, is there a headline, is there a soundbite that you want to make sure you carry with you um, in these coming days from the conversation we just yeah, had? Yeah, I was really taken with one of Kathleen's earlier comments, and that is that disruption is predictable. Very good. Reminds me that we need to embrace change. All right. And <laughs> reminds me that when I disrupt you, I should be less predictable. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Oh, Mike. <laughs> I like that. I can't top that one. I would say we, we've kind of walked around what, for a lot of people, myself included, is a, a bit the holy grail, which is to find a place in our world where we can mm. make a difference, we enjoy making a difference, and we're at the edge of something new. Mm hmm and I think one of the great powers of uh, consulting at the edge is that you are, in effect, inventing the yeah. future with people that are going to be very concerned about having that future. And the fact that you can do it with a lot of excellent yeah. people and make a difference in the world, I think that's where we all want to be. That's great. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, for for me, I, I already said that I loved the phrase, culture is personal. So I yeah. feel like I can't do that one again. But uh, another of the comments that Kathleen had made in, in terms of an aspiration, I, I think is one of these things that the the world is really trying to take on uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is this question of how do we create a truly human environment in a digital age? So thank you for that yeah. framing that, um, that resonates on a number of levels. <laughs> All right, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with Mike Yuseem's conversation with Nick Davis, head of society and innovation at the World Economic Forum. I'm Jeff Klein. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.